Rahwa. Um, you're here today for Africa Now, uh, which is a series uh, arranged by the Norwegian Council for Africa every month, and we take up different issues. Uh, but today, uh, this is a uh, joint uh, event by uh, the, the Norwegian Council for Africa, uh, African Student Association uh, at the University of Oslo, and the Norwegian Center for Anti-Racism. Um, so today we are going to be talking about the International Decade for uh, People of African Descent that was um, uh, declared by the United Nations and why we in Norway have not done anything about it. Uh, so I'm going to just uh, introduce our moderator uh, for today, uh, Michelle Mpike. Uh, she is a uh, researcher of social education and policy. Um, and she's also the founder of Inclusive Books, uh, which is a, a publishing house that is dedicated to publishing books or actually for a more diverse audience that so that the readers can identify themselves in the books. So what she's been doing is translating books uh, written by uh, African authors uh, so far. And the books are amazing. I've seen them myself, so I can testify to that. Um, and it's not just about color or it's not just about ethnicity, but it's also about uh, including uh, children regardless of what their um, functional ability as well. So, um, yeah, please uh, welcome Michelle. Hi, uh, thank you. And also glad to know that I'm not the only person up here who's a bit nervous. Um, but it looks like a very friendly audience. Um, so I'm going to start by giving a bit of a background on why we're here, um, just uh, elaborating on what Raha has already said, and then I'm going to introduce the three panelists. Um, so <laughs> the question that we're asking today is, are Africans invisible in Norwegian policies? Um, and we're going to talk about this question in the context of the International Decade for People of African Descent, which started in 2015 and which will run until 2024. So we're in the third or fourth year. Um, so this decade exists in recognition of the fact that people of African descent have been victims of slavery, the slave trade, and colonialism, and that they continue to suffer the consequences of these and subsequent actions that have infringed on their human rights and their dignity. And despite some recognition and some uh, advancements, racism, racial discrimination, both direct and indirect discrimination, as well as de facto and legalized discrimination, continue to manifest themselves uh, in inequality and disadvantage. So the UN declared through a resolution um, this uh, decade, international decade, um, and the declaration, uh, the resolution provides a solid framework for the UN member states, civil society, and all other actors to work with people of African descent to take effective measures for the implementation of a program of activities in the spirit of recognition, justice, and development. Um, and so in terms of at the national level, the UN advised all states to celebrate the launch of the decade at the national level and uh, develop a national program of activities for the full and effective implementation of the decade. In Norway, no steps have been taken uh, with regards to this decade, and it seems as if there are no plans to do so. Um, and so with our panelists and later together with the audience, we ask, are Africans invisible in Norwegian policies? Why, is the decade, uh, why does it look like the decade is not a priority for the Norwegian government? And what is the way forward? Um, and our first panelist that will help us do that is sitting right next to me. 
uh, Dawit uh, Shawal Abebe, an associate professor at the Faculty of Health uh, at Oslo Metropolitan University. Um, Dawit's uh, research focuses on risk factors, developmental trends, mental health problems, um, and this is from adolescence to childhood, as well as migration and mental health. Um, and he brings his perspective on the role of personal, cultural, and social identity on stress and mental health. Welcome. Um, and the next uh, panelist is Raha, who's already somewhat introduced herself. Um, Raha is the leader of the African Students Association at the University of Oslo. The organization works to create an inclusive academic and social uh, community for all students. Uh, and Raha brings her personal experiences as well as her observations as part of uh, the African Students Association. Welcome. Um, and our third panelist is Sindre Bangstad. Uh, Sindre is a Norwegian social anthropologist and senior researcher at the Institute for Church, Religion and Worldview Research. Sindre brings his expertise on Norwegian colonial history and the current political climate uh, to the discussion. Welcome. Um, and I think a good way to start, and the conversation is going to happen quite organically, um, but a good way to start would be to ask each of our panelists, why is this uh, decade of uh, the International Decade for People of African Descent important, and why is it important specifically within the Norwegian context? Okay, right, so uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the organizers, uh, and, and I'd also like to say uh, that I'm actually very honored to, to be here today, right? Um, I, I obviously, in this context, speak from a position of privilege. Um, uh, I, I, I do think, or I should at least hope, that in Norwegian context, uh, what distinguishes me from, from uh, quite a number of or present-day Norwegians is that I'm very much aware of these privileges, right? Uh, I've written a primer on, on racism in, in Norway and uh, done my best to, to, to sort of flag uh, these uh, issues in the Norwegian context, which is in the also in the academic context uh, quite challenging, right? Um, because, uh, I mean, for one thing, Norway hasn't funded empirical research on experiences, everyday experiences of, of racism and of discrimination for, for, for years, right? Some of us thought that that would uh, change with Breivik back in 2011, but uh, so far there's been uh, pretty little, right? So uh, there, there is this uh, persistent problem in, in the Norwegian uh, context of non-recognition of uh, the experiences of, of racialized minorities, right? So if we look at hate crime statistics, it's, it's quite clear that uh, much as Norwegians like to think of themselves as, as being colorblind and non-racist, uh, people with black African backgrounds are uh, the main uh, and most likely targets of hate crimes still in, in present-day Norway. Now, why is this uh, particular uh, decade important? And, and I must say, you know, in light of Norwegian history, it doesn't strike me as particularly surprising uh, that there's no enthusiasm for any of this in, in government circles, right? Uh, it, it's no secret to anyone that uh, I, uh, I have 
uh, I'm not in a position where I'm able to muster any sympathy for, for the present Norwegian government, right? We've had six years now with uh, not a single cabinet minister uh, who hasn't been white, right? Uh, that speaks volumes uh, uh, about uh, political decision-making at, at the highest level in, in Norway. And it's actually, you know, in light of the fact that uh, in, in Norway in total now, we have uh, some 17% uh, of the population with an immigrant background, first-generation immigrants or descendants of immigrants, um, that there isn't a, sim a single cab cabinet minister uh, with a, uh, uh, an immigrant uh, background. Uh, in Oslo, it's more, even more striking, right? Because in, in, uh, as we speak, you know, some 36% of uh, the population in Oslo happens to have an immigrant background, right? Um, and one of the persistent problems in, in addressing these issues in Norway, I think, is uh, this idea of Norwegian innocence, right? We were never part of the colonial story, which isn't by any means true, right? Because there were Norwegian slave traders uh, on ships uh, taking slaves uh, to from Africa to uh, the Danish-Norwegian colonies, St. Croix and St. Thomas in, in the Caribbean. Uh, there were Norwegian mercenaries, 10,000 of them, in uh, uh, King Leopold's Congo. Uh, there were Norwegian sugar plantation owners and slave owners in uh, Portuguese Africa. Um, and we have no reason to think that they were substantially different than any other uh, colonial officials or mercenaries uh, or, or, or people working uh, in order to advance European colonialism, right? And there's also the idea that Norway has uh, no history of racism to speak of, right? Now, obviously, that would be new to anyone with a ra racialized minority background, you know, and, and a lot of you will have ex experienced, you know, racism and discrimination in your everyday lives, right? But this non-recognition uh, is, is par for the course, I think, in, in the Norwegian context. Uh, and, and it goes to the very elite level, and, and that is quite, to me, the most disturbing part, right? Because you, you kind of, academics like to think that, you know, it's much better uh, when people have an education, right? If I look at Norwegian anthropology departments, right, they're, they're white, right? It, it's a white space, right? And there are a lot of vested interests in, in keeping those departments as white spaces, right? Uh, and for all that, anthropologists like to talk for hours about their own tolerance, right? That tolerance stops when you leave your ethnographic fieldwork side in, in many cases, right? Um, okay, so I'm going to leave it that there because I, uh, I'm, I'm from Bergen on the West Coast. And people from Bergen on the West Coast, as some of you will know, uh, tend to be very talkative and take up a lo lot of space, right? Yeah. Uh, I think I will follow the same. I think thank you for the invitations. Uh, also the same way, you know, I'm honored to be here. Uh, I think my perspective is like, uh, in terms of invisibility, is like uh, issues related to acculturations, uh, particularly related to integrations policies. 
because I know uh, when we uh, say a calibration process, it's a bi-directional process, you know, uh, that includes uh, social, psychological, and uh, cultural changes. Uh, what we see a discourse in the political discourse or a kind of integration policy is heavily emphasized on uh, on income perspectives, you know, earning perspectives, reptile uh, arbeid, uh, reptile arbeid, you know, everyone from day one immigrated to Norway, either, you know, I don't know if you finish a school, you know, work, 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 you know, employment, 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 but, you know, life, Acculturations for especially for immigrant like African immigrant, it's it's beyond that. Of course, work has a very central uh, role in quality of life, in well-being, in everything. But it's not only about that, uh, because when we say acculturation, it's a two-way process. You know, it's not only immigrant or Bisans who learn or maintain the culture. Also, the Norwegians have to learn, also from the immigrant or from the descendants. So I think there is a kind of discrepancies in you know how integration policy have been rephrased. Uh, in a particularly, I would like to uh, kind of rephrase because since I am a kind of like to think in terms of developmental uh, perspectives, like in terms of development. So I would like to a uh, kind of phrase uh, because uh, in terms of identities. Because identity is not only personal identities, because we have you know, social identities, we have a cultural identities. As a group, you know, where do we belong? Because I myself describe as a black man, Ethiopian, Christian, uh, so I have my own identity, not necessarily in terms of my uh, personal values, also my social and cultural values. So when we a kind of set up a kind of integration policies, does not really a kind of recognize those perspectives. So it's really a kind of diminish the values of a group of uh, ethnicities. So that's what we see, you know, diminishing those psychosocial values in such integration policies have a main a kind of, uh, uh, I see mostly, you know, uh, a kind of a missing link in, in, in uh, political discourse related to acculturation. So uh, I think, uh, you know, we could uh, get maybe a number of examples why, why Africans or other immigrants have a difficulty in adjustment. Because I think there are a number of research in the U.S. why people have a difficulty in adjusting to the new culture. Because, uh, you know, when you don't have a coping skills, when you don't have uh, a number of skills, not only personal skills, also social values, uh, cultural values, it's hard to, you know, to adjust to the new environment. So I think, you know, having those adjustment period, especially for uh, most African migrants who have stayed long in asylum process, who have a traumatic experience, experience of you know human rights violation in their home countries they have very diminished capacity both cognitive and psychosocial capacity in adjusting to to the mainstream so you know so whatever you push top down it does really have a minimal effect on uh, people's day-to-day -day life so I think you know I think that's what I see as a main uh, problem in terms of uh, the integrations perspective 
in a Norwegian's perspective in, uh, for policy makers. Um, okay, before I start, I would just like to say um, I have lived in Norway for 11 years. So I'm not born or raised here. So I came here with um, my own developed identity. But that doesn't mean that I didn't face uh, problems in terms of coping with uh, the Norwegian society. But of course, it was a very big contrast for me when I first came. Um, and he said something about how coping or adjusting to the new cultures. Um, and you have to ask yourself, um, how far does coping or adjusting go? Um, because uh, sometimes when I when I look at the way some people are pushing the whole integration debate, uh, it seems as if they're actually expecting you to forget that you had another ide another identity or another culture, and just just become what they are, um, which is assimilation that has nothing to do with integration. I feel like if you are a um, a functioning member of society, then I believe that you have integrated yourself quite enough. But of course, there are just, well, th we have our own, I'm sure everybody has um, here has experienced some version of it, but uh, the first thing I heard about the Norwegian, um, the Norwegian society is that, uh, well, uh, they're not very good with strangers. The whole stranger danger thing. Fremmedfrykt, as we, yeah, the Norwegians, yeah. Um, and I thought, okay, they're not very, um, Maybe they're not good with speaking with strangers. Maybe they're just introverted people. That's fine. Um, but uh, the longer I stayed and the more I uh, started socializing with no new people, uh, and by new people I mean Norwegians uh, and everyone else, uh, I saw that um, oftentimes it was as if you are the odd one out because the conversation flow doesn't go as naturally as you would imagine it to go because you see people around you, and I mean, I've, I'm not even going to talk about how it's, if it's, uh, it's just a dynamic that you don't understand, but that is because if you don't talk to people, uh, you expect them to learn your language. How are you going to learn your language? It's not just language is not learning just in school. Uh, you come to school, you learn the language, and then you go out, and then you go on about your day, and then you don't practice that language. You don't learn it. Um, and people don't talk to you, and then they pick on your language. And it's just, th th there are some things, and then we just go ahead and say, ah, but Norwegians, no, we're not racist, we don't see color. There's no such thing as you don't see color, you see color. The first signal that you see of a person is their face and their beard. Um, so this whole denial thing um, about, uh, we don't have the colonial past, so we cannot take up this issue because we're not, uh, we don't have a colonial past, we're not racist, we haven't, um, what do you call it? Well, we haven't colonized anyone or we haven't enslaved anybody. Um, I just think like if we think about the historical perspective during the colonization or imperialism period, uh, and I'm not speaking as an expert here, I'm just speaking as a person that has gone to school in Norway and learned the Norwegian history. Um, uh, Norway itself was colonized, but as Danish Norwegians, as Sindra pointed out, they did travel and they did participate in those things. So it does not uh, automatically um, justify ignoring all those things that we need to take up in our society because we are a multicultural society. We live together, but we cannot talk about racism. I think that is, that is just wrong.
I don't know what else I can add to that. So can I just pick up on, on, on that? Because I was going to mention this. I, I, I saw an interesting survey. And, and you know, social anthropologists always tell you that you shouldn't trust uh, quantitative surveys, right? Mm -hmm. But this was rather interesting, right? Be because it, it actually uh, said uh, that uh, uh, Norway comes way down on the list of uh, countries where people uh, think it is, e it is easy to make friends, right? I was kind of teasing my South African friends uh, uh, about this, right? Because South Africa was rated on 23rd place and Norway was on 67th place. And so I was saying my, my uh, uh, telling my, uh, I was telling my old friends in, in Cape Town that you know, I, 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 I can't believe that you actually made friends with me given this statistics. <laughs> uh, but there's certainly, you know, and I think there's been a, a shift also, a wider shift in Norwegian uh, policy debates, right? Uh, where integration was once, and we have to go back to the 1980s here, seen as a process which implied equal partners, right? Uh, we're now in, in the present political conjuncture in a situation in which, as Rahwa pointed to, integration is generally understood, even though it's not uh, asserted ex explicitly, it's understood as assimilation, right? We can only accept you as uh, a fellow citizen endowed with the same rights and, and rights to dignity uh, if you become more or less like us, right? Uh, and everyone knows how difficult it is to uh, pass the uh, invitation to dinner threshold with Norwegians, right? That takes ages. For, for, for some people, right, it's like uh, a utopia. You never get there, right? <laughs> so what, uh, and, and really, if you're coming from Africa, most people will think, what, what, what is wrong with these people, right? <laughs> really. <laughs> but this, you know, uh, thinking of, of ourselves and thinking of Norway as a small provincial country and trying to see Norway with the eyes of others, right? Uh, that's uh, an exercise which I think is is uh, severely lacking in, in my fellow countrymen at, at, at the moment. Right? Um, thank you so much. Uh, I just wanted to touch on, because uh, the word assimilation came up quite a bit, um, and I wanted to f maybe from a psychosocial perspective and your own personal perspective, and if you can, Sandra, from a more macro-level perspective, is what have been the consequences of this view of integration um, as assimilation rather than integration, like uh, um, Darwin said, as the bi-directional um, sort of experience of our cultural relation. So from a psychosocial perspective, what are the consequences of that? What have, your, what have you experienced it to be, Rahwa? And what could be the uh, macro and structural consequences of uh, integration as assimilation? I think, yeah, I d definitely. I, I in terms of like, because this is has been uh, a theory of like uh, uh, acculturation theory from 1980s. There is quite, you know, good publications out of this, uh, like how acculturations process, you know, our acculturation stress we call it, because when you meet a new perspective, a new environment, a new culture when you cannot cope or you cannot match or you cannot have the skill to manage this uh, change 
then you develop stress. I mean, stress is quite a, a quite a known phenomena, I think, in psychology or in medicine. Stress theory, you know, it changes not only your body, it changes everything, how you interact with your kids, how you manage your day-to-day -day life, how you behave, how you dress, how what food you eat. Because if you stress, you eat more chocolate, you eat more sugar. <laughs> of course, you may have a different, you know, I think this has a big impact on psychological distress. I think people, a number of people with this, in this process, in this acculturation process, develop negative emotionality, depression, anxiety. You know, not only the physical, mental symptoms, but people develop hypertension, heart disease because of uh, stress. So I think, you know, having such kind of mental burdens or like we, we call it blastening, you know, have a big impact on your identity. It's like a vicious cycle. So I think having this problem by itself keep you in a lower social stratum. So, you know, then having being in, as we said, in positioning, low having being in low socioeconomic positions or so low social class have effect also on your well-being, on the choice you make, on the treatment you get. Even I think in Norway where treatment or medical service is free, but 80% of, you know, the specialist care budget consumed by 1% of the elites. Because, you know, if you are highly educated, you will definitely influence even the decision of uh, the physicians, the decisions each, you know, a medical professionals can make for you because you have, you know, a better understanding. But this have a, a bigger impact for a larger perspective of like immigrant populations. So I think have, uh, you know, uh, I, of course, maybe it's quite easy to, to talk only the negatives, but I think also we have really positive finding, you know, immigrant groups, I think there is a good study from US in terms of Filipino, uh, Philippines communities who have more uh, ethnic identities, who have maintained their own culture, but of course, and also the American cultures have a number of, you know, health advantage. I think a good example in Norway is like also Vietnamese, because I have also reviewed a number of studies in uh, Norway in terms of Vietnamese uh, population in Norway, especially the second generations reporting less uh, psychological problems, less mental health problems. So there are, you know, issues that uh, dimensions not, not only affecting the, the mental health, also affecting the well-being of our physical health. Uh, so I think uh, uh, there is no question that assimilation has a negative impact, but it's beyond that. In my case, uh, I well, I have a different experience uh, when it comes to um, the whole assimilation thing. Um, in the beginning, of course, I felt extremely uncomfortable being here because I did not expect the kind of society that was waiting for me here. I thought people were going to be super friendly and uh, because that's what I was used to. Um, um, and then I came here and then like I mentioned earlier, the, there was the whole stranger danger and don't that the conversation not flowing well enough or people trying to pick on your language because, well, it's not your language. 
Um, but then at some point, uh, when I had lived here for a while, uh, I was surrounded by good people and I didn't feel that whole being an outsider thing anymore. Um, but then there's always something that kind of reminds you that you're not really, um, you don't belong here. Um, which is, uh, for, uh, for me, it was reading the news or reading some things on the internet or something like that. And you see the comments or the way the media frames a certain subject, such as, for example, people migrating into Norway in large amounts or, um, or there was, I think there was a whole debate about le let's give um, asylum seekers um, free training, uh, what free schooling in uh, driving or something like that. It was a very long time ago. And there was a whole thread of comments all over, like it was on the, on the post and a lot of the comments was like, oh, the Norwegian, the Norwegian kids don't get it. Why, wha why should they get it? And then there were some that just said, I just remember this one, because yes, give them free, uh, free driving lessons and then they can drive back to their countries. And those things, of course, I mean, you know, th and a lot of really bigoted uh, comments just like that. Um, and these things are a constant reminder. It doesn't matter how much you feel like you're actually, you have established yourself in a certain place. Uh, and I actually had to, at some point, I had to struggle with that whole thing about uh, where I belong and it's just, where should I just take everything that I have taken with me from my home country and my parents and uh, make up an identity from that and just deny the whole Norwegian thing, but then, or do I take what is good from the Norwegian, what I feel is okay, fits with me in the Norwegian context and uh, take the good and the bad or the just the good from what I took with me from back home. Um, and for me, uh, really the assimilation thing is just uh, one thing that I don't like is that I, of course, I have in some social situations, I have been told, um, oh yeah, but you're not like the rest of them. You're different. Uh, I'm sure some of you have heard it. Uh, you're different. Uh, oh yeah, no, you, you could be Norwegian. Oh, you're Norwegian. And the thing is, it's like it's some sort of uh, badge of honor or approval for who you are. Like, you know, you're not worthy until you are branded Norwegian. And that is, that, that, that is sort of like, that's the whole thing about people carrying around this whole uh, thought that it's good to be Norwegian. If you're not, then you're not worthy. And that is the social pressure of being assimilated. And you actually have to struggle with that as a person of color in Norway. It doesn't matter if you like, I mean, it, it does matter, of course, for me, because I, if I, ha I think if I had grown up here, I think it would have been a huge problem for me to actually uh, understand who I am or make up the person I am today or the person I'll be tomorrow, you know. So I don't think I can really, I need to say anymore, but I can talk about people that um, some of my friends that have grown up here that feel Norwegian. Um, don't have never even been to their countries of origin, and by that I mean their parents' countries, uh, identify as Norwegian, they're also constantly reminded that they're not Norwegian. Um, so you have to imagine what kind of struggle that they have to go through because it, it's really painful to identify yourself as a person that belongs here, that claims this country as their own, and then they come and tell you, ah, yeah, but this is not your country to claim. Nope, you're not, you're not Norwegian. Uh, where are you really from? You know. 
So can I also perhaps address this from the academic uh, perspective, right? If we talk about this UN uh, decade uh, for the descent of people, uh, for, for people of African descent, right, uh, that we're in, uh, <coughs> I, and in the context of Norwegian academia, right, if, if you look at uh, histories of immigration in Norway written by Norwegian academics, it's generally a history of immigration without any actual immigrants, right? So their voices are not recorded. It's a matter of statistics, right? Uh, pe people who at some point uh, came to Norway uh, are sort of statistical ciphers uh, in, in this respect. Uh, but I do think, <coughs> and, and this is, you know, more on the question, what is to be done with, with this situation? One of the very positive developments that I've seen in, in recent years in Norway is uh, the extent to which uh, you know, people of immigrant background, also uh, people of African descent, have started narrating their own stories, right? Telling their own stories, bringing out books about their experiences, right? Uh, about the experiences, the immigration histories of, of their parents, right? Uh, just to mention a, a, a few few titles, right? Uh, I'm, I'm, since Jakub, my dear friend Jakub is here, I'm going to uh, have to show this uh, today, which is, uh, by all accounts, a, a standard work on, on African history and histories in, in Norway, right? Uh, and, and, and it's a massive undertaking, right? We've uh, got uh, accounts by Guru, Guru, uh, Guru Sibeku, uh, a book entitled Tigayata. She writes about her South African father uh, who, who was active in uh, an exile because of his uh, resistance against apartheid in, in South Africa. Uh, we've got Kamara um, Lunisayu uh, who writes about her experiences with everyday racism uh, in, in a book entitled Ek Snakka om de which was published by Samlager uh, last year. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, uh, there's Sanele Bakwa, who's written her story of uh, life in exile uh, as also uh, you know, part of a, a South African family that actively resisted apartheid and was exiled because of that, right? Uh, and if we look across the channel to the UK, right? Uh, and, and they've, you know, much more advanced, I th I'd, I'd say, in these matters than, than we are here in Norway. Uh, but there's now quite a number of volumes about black histories of, of Britain, right? Uh, people like Sadia Qureshi, David Ulusoga, this who also had this wonderful BBC series of, uh, uh, about black Britons uh, and, and a best-selling paperback title, right? So this is, uh, I think, the way to go, right? Uh, I see a lot of positive uh, developments in terms of there actually being uh, an emergent and nascent uh, critical mass of, of, of people uh, with skills and high skills and education, right? Um, and, and who have aspirations, right? And could, could 
contribute also in the academic context if we manage to uh, push the boundaries a little bit further when it comes to diversity uh, in, in academia. And I'm not saying that that's going to be easy, uh, but I'm certainly committed to that. Uh, uh, who who uh, could take up, like da uh, David, well, take up academic uh, positions in Norway and contribute to making this much less of a white space in, acknowledge, in proper and due acknowledgement of what Norwegian society, and especially here in Oslo, looks like, right? Because, you know, uh, the way academia looks like in, in Norway is not what Norwegian society looks like. Well, that's, that's very obvious for, for those who work within those spaces on a regular basis. Mm. Okay. Um, <coughs> speaking of um, the whole uh, acquiring white spaces or actually kind of making it a little more diverse, uh, also, if we celebrated a little bit more of uh, that whole, if we Africans or if we who's we, and when I say we, I mean like Norway, the yeah, and or like if the Norwe if the Norwegian government pushed for celebrating a little more of the African people and trying to close that gap between uh, the whole us and them thing, um, and that I mean like the Norwegian society that um, and the immigrants Africans. Uh, I think it would be much easier for Africans to even actually like and by Africans or any immigrant for that matter to integrate themselves into society. It would be much easier uh, because uh, we're talking about academia and you can actually even like in normal jobs, like when I say normal jobs, any any sort of job, it's very difficult for an immigrant to get a job, let alone an elite position in the within academia. So I think it's actually it's 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 more than just um, it's more than just one white space, but it's a lot of white spaces. Even though we see a lot of people uh, or a lot of places more diverse than like what we would have seen like maybe five or ten years ago, we still need to uh, work on that because it's very difficult for a lot of uh, immigrants or people of color, uh, Norwegian people of color, to get jobs because of their names, beca because of their colors. Name it. Um, just you know, a kind of uh, back up on what uh, Rawa and Sindra have said. I think I think one of uh, I think of course there are positive progresses in terms of like uh, diversity and inclusion, but we are much far in terms of you know goals uh, of setting like increasing the diversity. But I think the main problem I think most of you have heard you know the debate in uh, uh, white. Uh, old man standard, have you heard these terminologies? Because, you know, uh, I think especially in US, you know, most of success and accomplishment is a kind of evaluated from a white, even not white uh, women, but a white man, an older man. So <laughs> I think uh, when we a kind of, you mentioned about uh, issues related to uh, a kind of role model, you know, in terms of like my personal experience, uh, because I, I came up as a student also. I came up, you know, when I have finished everything, uh, almost like when I was 27 or 27, I don't remember, but it was 10 years ago. <laughs> but I think uh, what's really, you know, after I finished my studies, I did my PhDs and I start to work, but I, I miss something in, in, in a public debate. 
you know, a, a, an African, because now since we are talking about African, because sometimes I feel really jealous when I see Abid Raja or a number of like uh, Asians immigrants in Norway have taken a number of public debates and uh, you know, a leading role in number of institutions, but we don't see that much. Maybe Africans, as you know, as you wrote, have a number of long histories in uh, you know residing in Norway, not African by you know born in Africa, grown up here, but we, we know in there are a number of, you know, have one, at least one parent, single parent with Africa roots, but we don't see those those peoples in a public discourse, in a public debates, uh, I, I think taking like a kind of standing positions on the behalf of African immigrants in Norway. I, have, I don't know, I have never seen, there are few Somalians, some backgrounds in Oslo Bistira. I think, you know, I think issues of inclusiveness, because we don't see any role model in that uh, public debate. It's really a kind of questions you on value of yourself. You know, this is a typical of you know self-esteem issue, because when you don't see those role models, you know, you start to question yourself: Do I have um, value? You know, do I worthy to make those progressions? in important uh, tasks in a public, like public or civil services. So I think, uh, I think that's really a kind of very important, I think uh, maybe, you know, these associations have to uh, kind of, you know, make kind of a lobby, we could say, you know, to a kind of promote, like uh, those who have African heritage to take the public debates also in that perspective. Okay. Yes, so uh, since I'm, uh, I'm, I'm an academic, um, I, I, I had to bring some books along, right? Uh, and what I thought, you know, in terms of what David was saying, um, it, it uh, reminded me of, of, of this very famous line from uh, a speech made by the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass in a speech uh, in Rochester, uh, outside New York, 1857. He says the following, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will, right? So organizing is crucial. Uh, and I do think, you know, we, we're talking, if we're talking about people of African descent in, in, in Norway, uh, we also have to be aware that this is a heterogeneous group, right? In terms of uh, social status, educational attainment, uh, class background, uh, national and ethnic uh, uh, origin, um, and 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 also share background and life experiences, right? Um, uh, and and this also means that. Uh, it, it seems to me that over time, if we look at, 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 at uh, the histories of African mobilization in, in the Norwegian context, it, it might also be argued that uh, the, the, uh, uh, the organizing and, 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 and making collective demands have been hampered and obstructed by, uh, or also by it's internal fractures, right? Uh, and conflicts of interest, right? Um, uh, and, and I do think if, if we compare, uh, right, you mentioned the Norwegian Pakistanis, right? 
their migration histories were different, right? So we have to keep that in mind, right? Uh, the, the fathers of uh, the second and third generation Pakistanis in Norway today, uh, people in Norway generally don't know this, but a lot of them had high levels of education from Pakistan, right? So, uh, you know, that this translates in, into success for their descendants uh, uh, is not all that surprising, right? But even so, there are lessons to be learned from, uh, from what other groups have been doing, right? Uh, and, and you could even, even learn from say, the feminist struggle and mobilizations in Norway over time, it's, as a matter of fact, a remarkable success, right, if you look at it from the 1970s and, and where we are today. Uh, we could even look at uh, LGBT struggles, right, uh, and the advances made in, in those struggles, right, and pattern some of the mobilizations and the demands being made on uh, similar demands being made by other groups in, in the past. Right? Thank you. Um, and so, yes, so there's a lot that, you know, people of African descent can and should do in order to demand their place in Norwegian society. And I think I'm very pleased, and I always say this, to have come to know at a time when young people seem to have found their voice, second and third generation Norwegian. Um, and a part of that is sort of having finally the vocabulary, just in terms of global youth struggles, to actually put um, words to their experiences. Um, but just to take it back to the Norwegian government and the African, the decade of uh, people of African descent, is because it's, it's been put together in the spirit of recognition, in the spirit of justice, in the spirit of development. From a psychosocial perspective, from a health perspective, a well-being perspective, what would recognition look like and what would justice look like? And also from, you know, from your own personal experiences, Raha, in terms of interpersonal um, uh, interactions, what would recognition in Norwegian society look like in terms of the injustices that have been faced historically and currently um, by people of African descent in Norway? What would that look like? Um, and what would then justice look like? And Sindra, I would ask the same question in terms of the political space and the academic space. What would recognition look like and what would justice look like? And just to sort of put my question into context, in South Africa, in terms of recognition, it is recognized in our constitution that people of certain skin tones were disadvantaged under a legal system under apartheid. It's recognized in the constitution. And therefore, in order for there to be justice, certain steps need to be taken. Uh, taken. And for example, one is affirmative action that's built into labor laws. Um, a school admissions policies are not allowed to discriminate against, uh, based on race and sex and religion and so on. So it's recognizing it and then putting measures into place to carry out some kind of social justice. And so what would that look like? Amrawa, you spoke about you know, the Norwegian government doing things to help people celebrate um, African cultures. What would that celebration look like? Because for example, um, people might say, but you have the Afro Arts Festival. You have, you know, so what would that look like for you, the recognition, and what would, uh, what would justice look like? You can, if you like. Um, well, when it comes to celebration, I mean, we have the Afro Arts Festival that happens once a year, and they do their best, which is nice, but I, I don't think it's even, like, given enough space uh, in terms of uh, the Afro Arts Festival, like, 
they do it once a year and some people hear about it, they go, they participate, and then we have another year until that happens again. Um, but in terms of the Norwegian government actually actively doing something about that, uh, one thing, educate. Not just the Africans, I'm talking about educate the Norwegians that there are some things that are n just not okay. Don't be ignorant. And that's actually, I, I actually, my it's I don't like calling people ignorant, but that is, when it comes to these things, the Norwegian society is quite ignorant on, on a lot of things because they haven't been exposed to it. Uh, but we have exposure now. We live in the age of, you know, information right on the palm of your hands. You can educate yourself and you can educate the youth so that all those things, like, because you don't, you don't just form an idea or form an attitude in one day. These are things that are, that are built up from the very young age. So educate the young, that people, all people, and because, the, and, the, and I know like if I say something, when I say something like this, they're going to talk about Jan Pelovo. No, that's not, no, just because it's on paper, it doesn't mean people actually believe it. You have to go back to thinking that, or you have to educate your young to actually reflect around the fact that people are all equal and don't say ignorant things. Don't 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 go around thinking about those things. For example, oh yeah, okay, this person is colored. Um, instead of asking where are you from or anything like that, just get to know them because everybody is different. Nobody no nobody asks you where you're from. I mean, they might ask you if you're Norwegian and where are you from. Then you say I'm from Drammen or Trondheim or something like that, and then the conversation goes on to getting to know each other. So try doing something like that. Uh, educate the young. I think to, to, to educate people that. And doing that, by the way, it's not just about educating them, having a teacher stand there and telling them that, okay, everybody's equal people. So think about that every day. No, that's not it. Uh, include them in your books, for example. That's why I'm very excited about what Michelle is doing, for example. Because those books are going to reflect the young, the young colored children. And even when Norwegian kids are exposed to those things, then some of the prejudices that are there will disappear because they'll have heroes. They'll have heroes that are colored. Prejudices disappear. So it's just the small things. Think about those small things. It's not just about celebrating the arts or anything. It's about actually doing things that are going to change and uh, that, that are going to change. And I remember like um, we had an event um, a few months ago about uh, decolonizing the academy and um, people came and shared some stories and I remember uh, uh, this one guy that came and talked about something that uh, he really did not appreciate at his kid's school. They were supposed to simulate countries or different countries and they had a young, a young boy in a turban sitting down begging in that room to simulate India or something like that. These things, people have to be like, Educate the educators and educate the young. Uh -huh. Before we get to education, what needs to happen for the Norwegian society or what message does the Norwegian government need to send to say we recognize that these things are happening and therefore our solution in terms of moving towards justice is education. What would that recognition look like? Would it actually be saying, um, you know, in terms of like public dialogue that this is happening? Would it have to be put acknowledged in education policy, what would the recognition look like? Uh, first, uh, stop making the conversation between uh, white politicians. Um, that's, wha that's what I genuinely think, because 
people that are multi it, it has to be multicultural it has to be a lot of people that are pe it has to be people that know what it's like to be colored that is what it's like to be different in a very homogeneous uh, society uh, so include other people give them a voice and start the dialogue but not just the dialogue find solutions make it's not just because a lot of things we talk about a lot of things all the time they do things uh, they say they say oh we have a, a we have a com committee they say well, what was it like i think they said for the first time ever we set up a committee uh, to uh, well, what was it some sort of integration something something that has something to do with yeah for people then there's the blue government uh, actually that was saying ah the red government and the red green government never really did that yeah they didn't but at least they didn't walk around talking about hate speeches they didn't they you know they didn't actually fuel uh, the fire that that had already started and was just getting worse and people actually listen to that and also the media also needs to play a role in that as well because the media is very ignorant in the way they're actually saying things when it has something to do with immigrants or people of color so it's it's a, it's a, it's not just one thing it has to be a whole uh, a very wholesome effort so that would be the recognition for me include everybody in the conversation and try to find actual solutions instead of just debating it and then forgetting about it. Okay, we have like five to eight minutes between our last two speakers before we take a short break and then come back for audience questions. So just uh, keep that in mind if you want. So I'd, I'd like to think that small acts matter, right? What we do in our everyday lives matter. Um, Academics are prone to thinking that, you know, uh, education is the answer to any possible question, right? I, I, I happen to be an academic who don't necessarily believe in that, right? Because un unless you have uh, a, a grounding in a concept of human universal humanity, uh, then, uh, you know, education doesn't necessarily um, provide uh, sufficient value to, to uh, live, or, uh, live up to, to, to the promise of, 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 a, of a universal humanity. Uh, but um, as far as academia is concerned, right, uh, one of the things that I've undertaken to do, and this was because uh, uh, an activist group called All White Panels made me crucially aware of this, right? So th this was someone telling me, hey, look at this, you're taking part in these conversations uh, uh, and the panelists are all white, no? Um, so I made a point uh, for a number of years now uh, to insist that every time I'm, I'm invited to address, no matter what the audience is, address an audience and speak about racism, uh, there should be other panelists with actual experiences of, of racism, right? Now, I'm a privileged white man, so I, I, I do get hate mail from time to time, but uh, it, it's not about the color of my skin, I can tell you, right? <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't happened today, right? Uh, <coughs> or my religious faith or whatever, right? Uh, decolonizing the academy. You know, uh, I, I was struck by, by the very virulent uh, pushback by some white Norwegian academics, right? It was absolutely striking. Uh, we don't want to hear these stories. Uh, 
and we don't want to even consider the perspectives of academics coming from other parts of the world, right? So part of my pushback, my personal pushback, is to try to get in my own series in public anthropology at the House of Literature, which I run twice a year, uh, people of color, right? Uh, outstanding intellectuals from the global south, right? Like, like this man, Achille Mbembe. Uh, I was involved in getting him to uh, the annual Faubourg debate in Bergen uh, last December, and it was a packed crowd. Uh, and Achille is eloquent as hell, right? Uh, at the Faubourg uh, Secretariat, and a, a really outstanding scholar, right? At the Faubourg Secretariat, uh, they were not convinced that he would attract uh, the crowds that they were looking for, right? So they were in panic, right? <laughs> Packed audience. And I had, on the committee, I had to fight for his nomination, right? Because other committee members, white feminist academics in Norway, on the committee were saying, I've never heard of him, right? And, and he's not an interesting voice. And I'm, I'm like, okay, he's unlike you, a member of the American Academy uh, of uh, humanities, he's got 15 books to his name. There is really no other post-colonial scholar as important as as Achille Mbembe in this day and age, right? And you've never read a word of his writings, right? So how can you say he's not a, an interesting voice? Uh, as far as the government is concerned, the state, right? Norway, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't got a single public statue commemorating uh, Norwegian involvement in the Danish-Norwegian slave trade, right? Denmark, we have the Queen Mary statue of this rebel leader uh, from uh, St. Thomas, right? Uh, but that, even that is sort of, it was an artist initiative. It's not a permanent statue. Uh, but it certainly raised awareness. Uh, so these kinds of initiatives to push back, right, and make demands. I think, Bos, you know, you have mentioned quite a number of uh, perspectives, so I don't have really much to say. But I would like to add one very important, uh, because, you know, since you guys mentioning a number of both structural and, um, like, micro-level issues, I think what's really important in this debate is in terms of inclusion, you know. Uh, inclusion, when we say inclusion, it's not only, like, uh, inclusion to, like, have, especially in academia, you know, like uh, maybe recruiting like minorities like me in uh, in uh, professors' positions, but I think there is a kind of issues uh, when because from my you know research experience, I think when we you know health problems for immigrants, you know one of the most uh, you know issues, very sensitive issues, politician would like to talk is about female genital mutilation, FGM. How many you know females or girls have been a subject of this practice, but are there any other problems that really require policy actions, that really require interventions? But so I think what a kind of really a kind of missing I see is an evidence-based actions. I think most of you know the actions in terms of integrations, in terms of uh, improving the well-being of uh, immigrants or minorities in Norway. I think there is a lack of inclusion because 
if you look to uh, no studies in Norway, who is producing a number of evidences for policies and actions, they don't include immigrants. You know, I have written a number of articles using only Norwegian's populations. Even the recent, you know, studies, studying genetics, studying the cause of disease, they don't have immigrant populations. Not African, not Pakistanis, not Somalis. So there is a big issues of, you know, uh, ignorance. Ignorance uh, which subject you to, oh, it's hard to recruit. How we are going to translate every questionnaire to 200 languages. Uh, they are reluctant. It's hard to talk, you know, students or in uh, grown up in Guru Stovner because they have some uh, behavioral issues. So there is a list of causes uh, which is really, uh, which is really, I mean, quite prevalent in academics, not to include, uh, uh, to include like minorities in their subject of studies. So I think there is, you know, we are like a kind of missing opportunities to a kind of use this knowledge for policy actions. That's why every time talk about you know issues, mental health issue, we don't see that much problem. But every time issues is about you know forced marriage, every time it's FGM, you know, of course they have their own problem, but there is much you know more problems or require more resource and intervention. So I think when we say ignorance and inclusion, you know, I think there is no really evidence uh, or a kind of a baseline where we a kind of synthesize knowledge to do some kind of uh, policy actions for the immigrant communities in Norway. Michelle, I think we need to give the, the, the audience a break, right? Yes, so we're going to break only for five minutes, um, and then we're going to take questions and answers. Um, and just before we break, I have to say that we had invited people from the political and uh, government space, but nobody was able to make it, so uh, we wanted to have a more n open conversation, but we you know, don't want to sound like an echo boss, but uh, nobody could come. Um, so we're going to take questions and comments. And I think what we'll do is we'll take uh, a round of three and then have people respond if there are any questions. Um, yeah. So are there any questions or comments? Um, I just want to thank the Fellows World for Africa and all these amazing panelists for actually taking the time um, to actually address um, the issue of the international decade for people of African descent. My name is Nene Bojang. I'm a United Nations fellow. I've just completed the fellowship program for people of African descent in Geneva this December. And I was actually thinking, how am I gonna launch this in Norway? And how am I gonna, who am I gonna involve in this? So this was like, when I saw it on Facebook, I was like, oh my God, my answers are, <laughs> my prayers are answered. Um, yes, the decade in Norway, the decade in Norway hasn't been recognized, but the decade in many countries hasn't been recognized. There's, nobody's doing things about it. The Caribbean countries are going to try to get repatriation as a form of justice for some of the issues around slavery. Um, issues on this, the right for development for all Africans, that's, not, that's also an area that hasn't been touched on. The issue of uh, recognition, as um, she's rightly said also, is something that also has to be uh, taken up. So this is um, 
The decade, as she said, also started in 2015, um, but nothing has happened. So we need to increase the visibility all over the world. Um, we have uh, um, something that is um, happening also at the level of the United Nations called um, the 100 most influential people of African descent. Those who follow me on Facebook would see that we are trying to get as much recognition and trying to get as many role models for people of African descent as well. People who um, contribute in immense ways in the society um, all over the world as well. So that's something that also we're working on. So this is something that is so, I am so happy that the Fellows Road for Africa has come up with this. And I just hope that we can all come together and send in an amazing um, application maybe to IMDi this year and then do a, a, a sort of a national launching of the decade officially here. Norway has just reported to CERD. I was there and they asked them about the decade, why it hasn't been launched because Norway is one of the countries that is leading in terms of most of this, um, the treaties that are ratified and, um, and in terms of human rights. So Norway is actually the leading country in many of these areas, believe it or not, despite the challenges that people of African descent are having. But the, in terms of the treaties and things that Norway is willing to do, many countries don't. Funding in terms for the decade also is lacking. None of the countries want to talk about the funding. And if there's no money in it, nothing is happening. So these are the issues. And every country is afraid of repatriation. And the Jamaica and Caribbean countries want repatriation. They want justice for the human rights violations. So there's so much that I can go on about, but this is exciting. I'll let other people tell. And uh, one last thing, the people of um, the working group of people of African descent, they're presently in, I think, Argentina. They've just left Belgium, and they will also have a country visit to Norway here as well. So that would be interesting also if you can get uh, people together, both from Palace Rod and other important organizations that can also meet the working group of for people of African descent and explain to them their areas of concern and the areas that they should take up with the government of Norway. Thank you. I think some of you probably know me. You already do here. Um, so you mentioned about media and I'm glad you touched on that because that's something that I've been trying to work on. Um, so I have my own startup uh, online publication which uh, tries to bring a diverse voice but also uh, we are hybrid between um, investigative and constructive journalism. So we investigate a lot about um, the challenges that immigrants go through. And when it comes to human rights, when it comes to social injust uh, injustice, and those are all in the field that what I'm working with. Um, so right now, I actually I quit my job last year so I can fully on work on this. I'm investigating uh, about single son parents. and. Um, and lots of things showed up on that radar. Um, so many complexities when it comes to meeting the system, um, the discrimination they felt uh, when they meet um, Barnavan, Family Van, all these institutions, which should have been helping. And when you talk about mental health, that was a constant thing that came up, especially the pressure of being a single mom here and being far and without a network. Um, and there's not this type of awareness that I'm seeing um, and especially when it comes to media as well, 
I've seen a lack of representation, and for me, trying to fight for funding, um, which you mentioned, is something I am considering, and I'm going to invite all of you um, to help me out here, because Friedhold, um, which is basically the Freedom of Speech Foundation, when you look at the criteria that we have of Norsk uh, journalistic, it says for the Almundsgruppe. And when I asked about this, what does that even mean? Is that the majority of Norwegians here? So the publication is in English and any other languages. We're trying to reach as many of the international community as possible. Now, last year I couldn't really figure out how I can fight this because I feel like I'm getting these barriers again and again. And even when I pitched up in Bergen for the Nordic Media Festival, I met with people who didn't understand what was going on with diversity in, in, in journalism. Why is that such a big deal? You know, you only have statistically 1% of all journalists here in Norway with minority background. And if you compare that with the, you know, the more minorities living in, in Oslo specifically, you got, like you said, 36%, um, but, you know, 16%, I think, in the whole of Norway. So there's a huge gap there, a huge gap of understanding of what's really happening amongst the minority groups. So one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking of doing is actually trying to fund, um, writing a letter, um, trying to invite as many people as possible working in racism and also uh, in all sorts of areas to really get them to understand why diversity in journalism matters and why diversity in media actually trickles down um, and affects the whole entire society. But also I kind of wanted to hear your perspective on the media and anything you add that you know could help me, guide me on my way. Who wants to respond? <laughs> yeah, uh, when you uh, said something about the uh, single moms in Norway, uh, one of my uh, very good friends of, I think, about eight years just moved back to her country because she couldn't stand being a single mom in Norway anymore. Um, and that's because she didn't have anybody to help her. And... Um, it was just difficult, and I, mean I think she actually just had a, m a mental breakdown at some point, and she said, I want to go back to my family. So that's a whole different issue that we can tackle some other time, but speaking of the media, um, well, the media, um, uh, one thing is they conveniently ignore things um, that are that have anything to do with immigrants. If it's, um, let's say, for example, I was a part of a demonstration um, last year, uh, and uh, that was arranged by the Center for Anti-Racism, uh, that there were the initiative takers, and I went there, and the first thing I asked to the my contact person was, did you invite the media? And he said, yes, I've invited all of them, but I haven't heard anything from anybody. And I thought, maybe they might show up. They did not. So the demonstration happened, we were there, and we talked to each other, we sh yeah, and it was it had something that this uh, demonstration was about the uh, Libyan crisis, uh, slave trade crisis. Um, so the media, though they are, they conveniently ignore things uh, when they're um, reporting. But if it's let's say a boat that sunk at the Mediterranean, then that story goes on for two three weeks, and they keep talking about it. They're like, yes, uh, this this whole it's not about the people that are dying even. It's about the, the wave of immigration that's coming towards Norway. Uh, so those things, we're not really thinking. We, we, it's very, it's we have to think about these things. It's, it's very important how we frame things, how we 
focus on things, the things that are that reported, the way things are reported, we have to be very much aware of them. And I mean, it has gotten somewhat better because I remember a few years ago when people, somebody did a crime, I don't know whether it was a Norwegian or an immigrant, even though they had, they both were Norwegian citizens technically. Um, but now they just report a person killed somebody, a person did this crime, and that's about it. So they have stopped with that. That's positive. That's progress. But still, it is the way people, th it is the way we represent people, the way we talk about people, the way we talk about issues. And when it comes to things regarding people of color, we have a long way to go. And with regards to paying attention to things that need attention, that need a voice, we have a very, very long way to go. So we need to, I, I would gladly work with you, work with us <laughs> when it comes to that, yes. Okay, so I, I, I can't possibly uh, address the question about uh, single foreign born parents in, in, in Norway, uh, even though I, I, I would imagine this being very hard. I mean, it's, it's hard being a, a single mom if you're sort of, quote unquote, ethnically Norwegian as well in Norway, uh, for many people. Uh, but I would imagine, you know, without the resources in a family, it would be much uh, harder even. But when it, when it comes to diversity in the media, uh, I, I, I certainly think that you know, this, this is a crucial uh, issue. I'm, 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 I'm always struck by this. You know, when, whenever there's a, there's a flood, there's a tsunami or an earthquake, uh, anywhere in the world, the first question asked by editors at, in Norwegian media seemed to be, are there any Norwegians in there <laughs> that we can report on? <laughs> right. So that tells you a little bit about, you know, uh, you know how uh, the devaluation uh, of other human lives inherent in the very optics that you ad adopt at the outset, right? Uh, and it's not as if we could imagine a, an ideal situation in which, uh, you know, every tragedy in the world matters, uh, matters equally to all, right? Uh, that simply doesn't, doesn't happen in the real world. But uh, it's also a question of the ongoing. So uh, editorial rooms in, in Norway are astonishingly wide. And, and that uh, obviously has very specific consequences for media framing uh, of particular issues, right? I, I was struck in the, uh, I did a book uh, based on uh, interviews with Muslims uh, active in the public spheres in, in Norway, which came out in 2015, right? And uh, a, a lot of them had very sort of traumatic experiences, also with editors who, you know, only seem to care about them to the extent that, uh, okay, I'm getting this column space for you. Uh, you have to deliver in time. Uh, whether you get hate mail or death threats after I publish this, okay, really not much of my, my concern. Right? I think that has improved slightly from what I'm hearing uh, now, but there's still uh, a long way to go. Uh, and, and certainly there's an acute lack of representation. I also think uh, we have to be aware of there being an ongoing financial crisis with profound consequences for Norwegian mainstream media. You know, they don't generate revenue from uh, selling paper copies of, of, of 
uh, of their papers anymore. And that also obviously has consequences for the extent to which they are able to fund reporters in Africa, for, for example, right? If you look at NRK's reporting from, from Africa, uh, I mean, I happen to know the, the news Africa correspondent, and uh, she's great on a personal level, but it's not as if, you know, Africa is a small place that one person can cover, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's uh, obviously for her, it's, it's the dream job, but it also, in terms of sheer practicalities, it's, 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 a, it's a nightmare for one person only, right? Just to kind of mention the role of media, because I think I, you know, my perspective is related to, you know, self-image, you know, self-confidence issues also related to, uh, you know, image has a big role because there is, I think I, I would like, because since I have studied on about eating disorders in my PhD, you know, issues of self-image has a big role, not for only for uh, medical issues, but for a number of other problems related to identity. So I think, you know, media has a big role uh, in terms of like a kind of uh, uh, promoting, you know, uh, creating a kind of uh, identities, inclusive identity, you know, where, you know, everybody, we feel you know, we belong here. But I think as you mentioned, this coverage doesn't exist. If it exists at a very minimal level, I think, uh, you know, uh, there is a good example in Fiji. I think it was a study in 1980s. So they did a study before, you know, the introduction of TV in Fiji because there is no really a kind of natural experiment, you know, how people in Fiji uh, feel values before the introduction of t TV and also after the introduction of TV, after they start to watch you know, medias and TV. You cannot do that experiment uh, now these days because everyone is almost westernized in terms of values. But what we see, there was a big, you know, issues uh, related to self-image and self-consult after the introduction of, you know, media like uh, traditional media like TV. So I think, um, I think having such diversity will have a bigger role in, uh, you know, well-being related to uh, identities and self-image. a little bit I understand like um, the media industry is changing rapidly uh, especially when it comes to the internet and websites and digital platforms and, and so forth um, but there's clearly this two things happening in the research area that has been monitoring how the media and how news is re being reported and we've seen especially when it comes to the youth when they read the news they feel depressed and disengaged um, and that is that leading them to switch off news. They don't want to read what's going on anymore. Um, but a second thing that's been also documented is um, this easiness to have create a room for populism, which is what we're seeing. Um, because journalists are taught quite early to run after the drama, um, write about the negative stuff. Um, but I think now we're at this um, point where we want to look at the solution is why there's a movement on constructive journalism where we're looking at solutions. I think that's where, you know, if you're talking about identity, I think that kind of comes in as well. How do we carve our own narratives in, in some of the forms in this space? Quick conclusion. 
Yeah, just I was just going to actually talk about like wha when it comes to I said a lot about uh, how the Norwegian uh, media is very selective about what they report. I just remembered an example that was just uh, you know when the news about ISIS was or is Islamic State was very hot. Uh, there were many reports that came out about people that were killed by the terrorist organization. But then uh, there came out news, not on Norwegian media, but there came out news about 27 people that were murdered in Libya by uh, Islamic State terrorists. Uh, these people were, um, of course, immigrants, and they were mostly from Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, and it was reported, even by CNN and BBC, poorly reported, very, very poorly reported, I searched for it uh, on Norwegian media. I searched and searched and searched. I didn't find anything bigger. And then they just reported it once, this tiny, tiny article, 27 people uh, murdered by Islamic State. And, um, but before that, I had just seen that there was this one journalist that was killed and everybody changed their uh, Facebook uh, profile picture to black to protest against or just to add solid solidarity. And that when it comes to like the self-worth and everything, wh what is a black life worth? What is a colored life worth? That makes you question that as well. And that, that I actually blame on the media. I do. Okay, thank you. Um, I will start with the woman in the spectacles and then Simon. And then I'll come to the woman in the beret. Um, just in the interest of time, Sindre, can I give the question about uh, the, the question about politics, um, and maybe Rahul and uh, Tawik, the question about how can you expect uh, Norwegians to embrace you when Africans aren't embracing you, and maybe uh, Tawik, you can take it from the perspective of self-image, how Africans see themselves and how that plays out and how they interact with one another. So I'll give you guys some time to stew on those, and then Simon, very quickly, uh, one minute, maximum. Yeah. Um, we live in interesting times, you know, as uh, Africans uh, in Norway. Uh, I think I've been here 30 years. I'm an aspiring writer, uh, very, very interested in, uh, the, in migration. I'm a, son, I'm a son of an immigrant in South Africa. And um, I've been writing since, since 2015. I've written six books uh, in three and a half years. I'm very impressed <laughs> myself. Um, but um, you mentioned uh, something, you know, about jobs, you know. Uh, I think we are very tra traumatized people, both, you know, as uh, Africans as well as, you know, as, as Europeans because we still have this slave mentality ingrained, ingrained in us uh, on both sides. So when I came here, uh, these young men here, those two guys, and many of you who have been here around are shocked that I'm here today. I've been here 30 years, but I've never been active in, in any of the African milieu events here. N not in any way, you know. Because why? I've been working and 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 working until I got tired. And I went home. <laughs> you know, you know. Uh, so my, my, my point is that uh, indeed, you know, but, but this is changing now. Because I'm, I'm maybe, let's say, first generation. I'd be, if I've been here 30 years, you know, I'm, I'm, I consider myself as part of the first generation. Um, so uh, we, and also the first generation that came here, I, 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 would, I dare say not many of us came to Norway to stay, actually. I know for myself that I was passing through. I was going to Oxford and I was going to Harvard, you know. <laughs> but this is my home today. I mean, that's another long story as to why I, I call Norway my home today. So, so, so the thing is, you know, when, and we get to in personal relationships, I've been in a relationship, um, 
with uh, in a family that's very in, in, uh, influential, you know, academically in, in, in politics and everything, where uh, this thing, you know, about the slave mentality is there. You know, I came here already as a university educa educated uh, person, my BA and everything, and achievements in other areas of life. They were looked down upon. It's not supposed to happen. I'm an African. I'm black. You know, <laughs> you know? and you meet this also in, in many, many areas. And then uh, many of us then get caught up. You know, b b another friend of mine uh, goes to school, and uh, b South African, black, uh, Norwegian, uh, white. And she says, what are you going to do to, to, do to study for? You don't need that. And, uh, you know, w when you are going to study three, four, five years, where are you going to get money? You've got to work. <laughs> so, so we get caught up in that. But now our generation, this second, third generations now are rising. And this is why I say it's a very exciting time, you know. And they've got the education. They are getting education. Their eyes are open. And they've got the guts. So it's great to be here. It's great to be living this time in Norway. Thank you very much. Keep up the fight, guys. Okay. <laughs> okay, we have five minutes maximum. Um, I'm going to start with you, Javi. I, I think, you know, I really appreciate uh, what she mentioned, you know, because self-worth, it's not only like uh, from majority to minority. I think how Africans leaders, you know, value their, their citizens. Uh, you know, how Africans nations value their people have a larger impact on our self-image. Because, you know, a leader, a nation doesn't value their own citizens. While you migrate some other countries like a Western nations like Norway, how do you value yourself has a larger impact on your self-esteem or on self-efficacy? You know, how do you control other aspects of your life? How do you value yourself? What kind of clan aspirations you have in your life? This is really very kind of basics, you know, that's really lacking in African countries. I think it's really like one good example is what's happening in Ethiopia recently in the last nine months. It's we got a leader, you know, who is a kind of uh, traveling in every Arab nations, you know, dealing with a number of Ethiopian women slaves, especially in the Middle East. So it's like, I think, you know, giving back and valuing your citizens will have, a, uh, personal, I believe, has a kind of a back effect or you could call it like a selling effect on self-values we have here. So I think it's really we should do ourselves, uh, our responsibilities in a kind of, uh, a kind of I think such kind of discussions have a larger lure in terms of our uh, uh, self-worth, uh, you know, to not only like criticizing, maybe we became so a little bit too PC and critical of, you know, of only top, uh, what's happening on the top, but we should also self-critical also on our involvement in uh, promoting ourselves, uh, how we should a kind of promote a positive image about African roots, as you know, my uh, a friend mentioned. I think that should be a kind of bi-directional. We should not expect only from top, but we should also have a contribution in positive ways. Uh -huh. Uh, before I go on to the uh, embracing each other thing, um, there is a political, so in political science they say uh, democracy brings about prosperity and prosperity brings about democracy. So I think maybe that's why uh, we keep talking about the Norwegian context because Norwegians, uh, they are very much known for their soft power in the world. And that is because they keep pushing for a lot of human rights and you know all the good things about the um, Norwegian Goodwill. 
but when it comes to the embracing uh, the um, your own people, uh, why why should you expect a Norwegian to be not racist to you when people are racist to you? I have experienced racism from other black folks as well, uh, and other minorities. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but uh, we are in the Norwegian space, and the reason I engage in, for example, pan-African movements and not, for example, Ethiopian or Eritrean movements is because I actually believe that we will succeed better if we work together in unity. Yeah. Sinje? Okay, so uh, Norwegian politics 101 in five seconds, right? Um, so it's important to keep in mind that uh, this uh, total of 17.6% uh, 35.8% in Oslo uh, of immigrant background or uh, and, and descendants of immigrants uh, would also include white immigrants, right? So Polish migrant laborers, actually the most numerous group. From Europe. Yeah, yeah. So it would also include uh, Bosnians who came here uh, in the course of the 1990s. It would uh, include Kosovo. Kosovars who came uh, around the same time and were not, obviously not racialized in the same manner, right? Uh, as people of African descent. Uh, so it's it's not a, a, a sort of a consistent it, uh, voting block. You couldn't consider it a voting block uh, at all, I would argue. But even so, uh, if we look at the, the, the potential pool, right? It's no secret in, in Norway that people of immigrant background do not tend to vote for the governing parties, which is a, a sort of right-wing coalition government, including right-wing populists, right? But there is one crucial exception. The Poles and the Eastern Europeans, they vote in massive numbers for the conservatives. Um, but, uh, cabinet ministers are not necessarily drawn from the pool of active practicing politicians. You can get uh, you can get cabinet ministers, and you have had uh, cabinet ministers of African descent in the past. Manuela Ramin Osmundson uh, is a primary example. Uh, she was a cabinet minister for a while in a Labour Party-dominated government. So it's not that these people do not exist. The, the signal that is being sent out is that, you know, we see no need that this cabinet should reflect uh, Norwegian society in any respect, right? The cabinet is a white space, right? That, that's, that's the actual signal that is being sent out. And I find that tragic, you know. Um, we do have to go at eight o'clock. If only comments and very quickly. Yes, very quick, 30 seconds. Um, thank you very much, and thank you to the panelists. I'm, I'm told I've got 30 seconds, so I'll be very, very quick. Um, well, 15 years ago, I should say, no, uh, 20 years ago, I began a journey to documenting the African presence, and I was told it's impossible, there's no stories, you won't find anything, the African migration started, in the 1970s. But what I've been finding date back to 1589, you, you know. And so we produced a book 
not me alone. Uh, there were many other writers and scholars. Uh, the book uh, uh, So today, it's a good start of a conversation. Um, we need to talk more. We need to talk about how many platforms. So I don't have actually um, a, a question. What I wanted to say is, uh, this is the beginning. It's always good to start somewhere. And thank you for your presence. Thank you for those here. That's what I want to say. Thank you because talking is always a good start, you know. Hi. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I have uh, started one startup here in Oslo. Um, the name is Kust Life. And uh, we take care about uh, uh, artist mobility and artist residence. And um, what I started to, to make that because, you know, the restrictions of uh, artists coming here to Norway, you know, especially African, especially African descendants and uh, from special countries. So I have been kind of uh, try to fight against uh, all the, the situation. And uh, well, I come from Brazil. Um, the University of uh, Oslo um, stopped to have uh, Portuguese language as uh, one of the careers here. This, this is about three, four years. And uh, we fight to bring back, you know, we talk about uh, academic, <laughs> academic and people, and uh, to bring back the language, you know, back to, to the university. And I think that if it all included the Africans that speak Portuguese could come in and talk with us because um, we participate in something called the Lusophonia Oslo. And um, we count with everyone to help us to bring the Portuguese language and the participation of artists from Africa in Norway. So that's my okay, so we will bring the conversation to an end. I just want to say thank you so much for to our panelists. Your contributions were very, um, we're very grateful for your contributions. Um, and thank you to you all for attending. It was very good to have you here and to have a conversation together. I do want to say in closing that it's very important to hold African countries avail uh, accountable for how they engage with Africanness and how they portray Africanness to the world and how they celebrate this decade. But also, African people and people of African descent live in Norway. And they have the right to demand that they are recognized and that this decade is recognized. There are people here in Norway who have never been to an African country. There are African descendants who are Norwegian. And so as much as we must hold the continent to account, this country where African descendants live and who are Norwegian also needs to be held to account. Thank you.